Good morning, and welcome to Simply Finance. It's Saturday, February 24th. On today's show, find out how infrastructure borrowing can benefit Hong Kong for decades to come, and learn about the settlement of the financial aid suit involving Dartmouth and other elite universities for $166 million. Plus, lawmakers are pushing to pass Oregon's first state campaign finance limits in the next two weeks, raising concerns about loopholes. This coverage and more, up next. I'm David, and you're listening to Simply Finance. We start off with a look at Hong Kong's public debt to gross domestic product ratio, which is extremely low by international standards. There's a strong economic case for the city to rely on debt financing for infrastructure projects, despite concerns about the potential financial burden this could place on future generations. Here to discuss this further is our correspondent, James. So James, why is debt financing being considered as a viable option for Hong Kong's infrastructure projects? Well, David, the government has to finance all deficits eventually, and the options are raising taxes, cutting spending, or borrowing. Given Hong Kong's current sluggish growth, raising taxes or cutting spending are not favorable options. This leaves increased public sector borrowing as the least bad option to finance Hong Kong's infrastructure plans. And how is debt financing more efficient and equitable for financing infrastructure? Debt financing is more efficient because the benefits of infrastructure development accrue over many years, even decades. It makes sense to finance that development over a similar time frame. Just as households make costly capital purchases by taking a long-term loan, it is also more efficient for the government to finance infrastructure projects using debt. It's also more equitable because future generations, who are the major beneficiaries of these infrastructure projects, are likely to be richer than current generations. So it's only fair that future generations pay at least part of the costs. But how can the government ensure debt sustainability and financial transparency for these projects? The Treasury should put in place a set of principles to ensure debt sustainability. First, debt financing should be used only for infrastructure projects in which assets that can be valued are created. Second, the Treasury should present a debt sustainability report alongside the budget. Third, the bonds the government issues should be linked to specific projects. Finally, there should be a rule that sets a cap on the total stock of debt that the Hong Kong government owes, as well as a rule that limits the amount of debt the government can issue in any one financial year. That's a comprehensive approach. How do you think this proposal will be received by the public? There are concerns that such borrowing only deepens the government's financial hole and burdens future generations. The government needs to engage seriously with these concerns and build society's trust in its ability to manage Hong Kong's finances well. This is also an opportunity to educate the public on why borrowing for infrastructure is not only necessary, but may even be desirable in the current macroeconomic context. That's certainly a perspective to consider. Thanks for that, James. In a shift of focus, let's discuss a recent development where Dartmouth College, along with Rice, Northwestern, and Vanderbilt universities, have agreed to pay a total of $166 million to settle a two-year-old lawsuit. The lawsuit accused them of colluding to limit financial aid for admitted students. 
Michael, our correspondent for Simply Finance, is here to provide more insight into this matter. Can you tell us more about this lawsuit and the settlements? Certainly, David. The lawsuit, which initially named 16 defendants, accused these universities of working together to decrease financial aid for students. While all the schools involved have denied these allegations, 10 universities, including Columbia and Yale, have now chosen to settle for a total of $284 million. The settlements will be used to provide cash payments to the entire class of affected undergraduate students, not just those who attended the schools that have settled. And what are the individual settlement amounts for these universities? Dartmouth and Rice have each agreed to pay $33.8 million, while Vanderbilt will pay $55 million and Northwestern will pay $43.5 million to resolve the charges. These settlements are pending a judge's approval. What has been the response from these universities? Vanderbilt and Northwestern insist they did nothing wrong and say the claims are baseless. Rice said the university never conspired to decrease aid for its students. Northwestern, in a statement, said that more than 60% of its undergraduates received financial aid, which amounted to almost $290 million last academic year. Vanderbilt, meanwhile, said it spent $244 million on financial aid for undergraduates last year. Can you tell us more about the group these universities were part of and the antitrust exemption that's tied to this lawsuit? The schools named in the lawsuit were part of the 568 Presidents Group, a collection of highly selective institutions that collaborated on aid formulas. This group dissolved after the lawsuit was filed. The lawsuit is tied to a 1994 federal antitrust exemption that allowed colleges to collaborate on financial aid guidelines. However, this exemption applied only if schools engaged in need-blind admissions, accepting students without regard for their financial circumstances. The attorneys for the former students claim that the universities maintained admissions policies that considered a student's ability to pay when admitting them to certain programs which they say violated the antitrust exemption. So what's next in this case? Seven defendants, including Georgetown and Johns Hopkins, remain. The plaintiff attorney has urged these remaining universities to do the right thing and rectify the overcharges to their alumni and students who came from working class and middle class backgrounds. Thanks for the update, Michael. Now, let's shift our focus to the legislative sector. In a significant move, Lawmakers from both parties have indicated that passing state campaign finance limits has become a priority in this legislative session. This comes in the wake of a three-hour public hearing in the House Rules Committee, where lawmakers, union leaders, and business group lobbyists testified in support of House Bill 4024. This bill, a compromise made public just yesterday, aims to restrict campaign contributions and require additional disclosure of political spending. Here to discuss this further is Abby, a correspondent for Simply Finance. Can you tell us more about the significance of this bill? Certainly, David. House Bill 4024 is a significant step towards greater transparency and accountability in political campaign financing. It aims to limit the amount of money that can be contributed to political campaigns and requires more detailed disclosure of political spending. This is seen as a move to reduce the influence of big money in politics and ensure a level playing field for all candidates. And what led to this bipartisan support for campaign finance limits? 
there's been growing concern about the influence of money in politics, and this concern cuts across party lines. Lawmakers, union leaders, and even business group lobbyists have expressed support for measures that would limit campaign contributions and increase transparency. The fact that this bill is a compromise made public just recently suggests that there's been significant negotiation and consensus building behind the scenes. What impact could this bill have on future elections? If passed, this bill could significantly change the landscape of political campaigns. By limiting campaign contributions, it could reduce the influence of wealthy donors and special interest groups. The requirement for additional disclosure of political spending could also increase transparency and accountability, making it easier for voters to understand who is funding political campaigns and how that money is being spent. Thanks for those insights, Abby. As we continue to explore the intersection of finance and technology, we turn our attention to the ethical dilemmas that can arise from the integration of AI and blockchain technologies into these sectors. Celeste, a correspondent for Simply Finance, is here to delve deeper into this topic. Can you elaborate on these ethical dilemmas? Certainly, David. The ethical challenges here primarily revolve around data privacy, security, and the integrity of financial reporting. The crux of these issues doesn't lie in the technologies themselves, but in how they're applied. This underscores the need for professionals in the field to adopt a philosophy of continuous learning to navigate the complex landscape these innovations create. So it's not just about understanding the technology, but also about how it impacts financial ethics and reporting. Exactly. The skill set required in this new age goes beyond mere technical know-how. It demands a fundamental understanding of how these technologies impact financial ethics and reporting. As M. Fon Akpen, an accounting and financial management researcher for Methodist University advises, professionals need to focus on being technology agnostic and have the mindset of being lifelong learners. Can you explain what it means to be technology agnostic in this context? Being technology agnostic means embracing the tools that best serve their purposes without allegiance to any single platform. It's about using the right tool for the job, regardless of the brand or type of technology. This approach allows accountants and financial managers to remain relevant and ethical in their practices. It seems like a challenging landscape to navigate. How can professionals in the field keep up with these rapid changes? It's indeed a challenge, but one that can be managed with continuous learning and adaptation. Professionals need to stay updated with the latest developments and understand how they impact their work. They should also be open to learning from a variety of sources and be willing to adapt their practices as needed. Thanks to our Simply Finance reporter Celeste for shedding light on this complex issue. And with that, we wrap up our stories for today. Thanks for listening to Simply Finance, We'll see you back here tomorrow.